The books of Daniel and Esther depict a nation of Israel in exile. In both cases, the protagonists come into conflict with the government of Babylon. How should we as followers of God act when we come in conflict with the powers of this world? To find out, stay tuned for today's lesson, If I Perish, I Perish. I'm Mark Holt. And I'm Brad Cox. And this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Talker, and once again, we welcome Bry Cox, award-winning photographer and Hebrew scholar. Welcome, Bry. Hello. Thank you for having me. Today's question comes to us from Camila. She asks, why was it okay, uh, in other words, not idolatry, for God to instruct Moses to create a brazen serpent? And uh, I figured, Bry, you could you could an- help me answer this one as well. This is uh, It has to do a lot with what we're d- talking about today as Daniel uh, has to resist the brazen serpent in the, uh, or the Shadrach, Meshach, and, Rebed- and Abednego have to resist the brazen serpent in, in Babylon. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about why it was an idolatry and why it was okay for God to lift up this brazen serpent to heal the Israelites when they were bitten by snakes. One of the big things is that all, almost all symbols have good and bad meaning, depend on who's using it. So like the serpent is, is a really good one. Um, the serpent can be a symbol of Christ. It can be a symbol of, of living of like an Egyptian time is also like continual living and rebirth. Um, but it could also be a symbol of Satan. Satan's called the serpent in Genesis. Yeah. So obviously that was the, the form that he took because it was a symbol of Christ. And then because he took that symbol, it became uh, right. so sort you know, of a perverted symbol. Right. So almost everything has, it's like it's counterfeit as yeah. you may want to say it. So, or when the Lord has it as his symbol, Right, that means we're supposed to look to the Lord, but again, everything has its counterfeit. Yeah, and so in one way, if you're if you're looking away from the Lord, then that would be idolatry. Okay, I didn't think of it that way. And one of the biggest things, anytime you think idolatry, I think there's two big things that always should stand out, and that is um, idolatry is always in its basic form love of self and love of money. The opposite of love of money is integrity. Satan says, you know, you can buy anything in this world with money, and and if you think about criminals particularly in prison, you know, they will do anything for money. That's why they're in prison. They will, I mean, sell drugs to kids, for instance, right? There's literally no integrity in that. They're, they'll cause all sorts of harm. They'll hurt people for sneakers because they care about stuff. It's the love of stuff, love of money, and love of self. And the opposite of love of self is uh, self-worth. Interestingly, again, talking about prisoners, the people that have the highest levels of self-esteem when level, measured self-esteem are always people in prison, they think the most of themselves. And we could th- usually think of love of self as pride. That, okay. Right? I love myself so much. I'm the most important thing. I'm the center of the universe is, is the far epitome of it. But we're told in the world a lot to love ourselves. That person needs to love themselves more, right? Love of self is the kind of the new way of saying self-esteem. But it's always the wrong way. The church and everything in the gospel will never see the word self-esteem. It's always self-worth. And that's that's the opposite and it's the better version we should always work on like ourselves improving our self-worth or you know proving others people's self-worth and what that comes down to is understanding our value comes from being a son or daughter of god 
So it sounds to me like what you're saying is the urge to idolatry is always rooted in one of these two And it's always fallacies. one of those two. And so when you see people, you know, anytime in the old scriptures and we see people doing something and we go, in our world, we go, I'd never do that. I'd never bow down to a statue. Yeah, because really, that's not the way we... We, we think of idolatry today. Yeah, that's not the manifestation, the modern manifestation of these attitudes that you're talking about. Right, so in the end, you know, there's a, was it Second Timothy? I'd have to look it up where it talks about in the in the latter days, you know, people be Men lovers, be of, lovers the, of their own self. Their own self. And it has this long list of pretty terrible attributes. Yeah. Which is, you know, they, they despise their parents and, and all these things. And, and really what it is, is just, I'm so self-important. I'm the most important thing. And okay. I'm, it's a love of self. Okay. So we don't see either of these. If I'm, if I'm reading you correctly, we don't see either of these attitudes in the Israelites who are bitten by snakes. Right. They don't have the idolatrous attitude, and and that sort of means that they can look at an image of a snake and not be engaging in idolatry. Right, because there they're saying, right, I need to be humble. Yeah. And I need to look to God. It's not so it's a, the exact opposite of idolatry. Right. Pride, right, love of is the love of self, but instead it's, no, I need to look to some something greater, somebody greater yeah. in the Lord in this case. Like the whole world today, the biggest thing is to try to tear down um, any, any kind of hierarchy or any kind of like, you know, you look down on say your elders. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, we we're always growing up to say brother, so-and-so Respect or Mr. So-and-so yeah. in, in town. You'd, you'd say something like hold the door for somebody to say, you know, say Mr. And, and sir. sir. Yeah. Or madam. And or today that's just not done. Yeah. It's archaic. It's archaic. It's like, we're not supposed to, <laughs> yeah. at least the world says respect elders. And then, but the very respect children. Yeah. Yeah. Children. Yeah. Instead yeah. Children are supposed to be the wise ones. I do believe that children are our future. <laughs> but I don't think anybody can argue with that. Yeah, so respect in the Lord is, again, you know, showing respect to, to the highest elder. Yeah, okay. Uh, I took a little different tack with the question for me. Um, so later on, it, King Hezekiah, you might, you might remember, when he cleansed the temple, um, he felt a calling from God to cleanse Israel and cleanse the temple. And one of the things he did was destroy this brazen serp- serpent because by this time— the Israelites had begun worshiping it, and they, had, they even had a name for it. It was Nehushtan. So this this brazen serpent was was stored in the temple, and it was a minor form of worship, but the Israelites had actually begun to worship the serpent. So he recognized this as idolatry. However, in the same temple, there are images of cherubim woven into the veils and painted on the walls, and garden imagery of the fruits and things that would be offered as sacrifices and... Um, so the these weren't these weren't considered idolatry at all. They were considered symbols of right as we mentioned in last in our last podcast of the priest as he walks through these uh, through the veil and he has these depictions of the cherubim. It's it's him reversing the fall, him traveling from the world back into the presence of God. So God often uses symbols to teach us something important. There's nothing wrong with using a symbol. It might be a, a woven, it might be a tapestry on the veil, or it might be a brazen serpent on a staff. Uh, but like you're saying, when there's no accompanying attitude of rebellion towards God, instead it's humility that makes you look at that. And Christ even makes mention of this brazen serpent. He says, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, just as this serpent was raised up, so will the Son of Man be raised up. And uh, that re- referring, basically saying what, what Moses did was a type of the crucifixion and when we look to God and live, which is which was the title of the lesson where we discussed this, uh, they weren't worshiping this 
this brazen serpent. What they were doing was worshiping God by by learning from a symbol, and that's the that's a crucial difference. Well, let's get let's uh let's get into the book of Daniel. So Daniel chapter one. Uh, once again, if you'd like to have your question answered uh, as part of the podcast, please email me gt at gospeltoctrine.com. And who knows, maybe even uh, maybe even I might have Bri with me to answer your question. You get two, two gospel scholars for the price of one. That's right. <laughs> okay, uh, so chapter one, what's going on in chapter one of Daniel is the, Daniel has these three friends. First of all, uh, 605 BC, well before even the, the book of uh, Mormon opens up, Daniel is one of the first group of Israelites, they're the kind of the cream of the crop. They're royal family, noble families carried away into Babylon. And so Daniel and his three friends are among this group. And because they are, because uh, Israel has not yet rebelled to the point where they would later, they weren't treated so badly. They were given power and position and they were groomed to be the, you know, the future envoys. My guess is that the, the, leaders of Babylon were thinking, we're going to want people to deal with the Jews later. Let's take these captives that we already have and train them to love Babylon, and then we'll have somebody that we can always, ambassadors, etc., that we can deal with the Jews with. And that's the position that these four find themselves in. So what are they, what are they faced with? Yeah, so I think, I think your, big, your main point is right. Like, so they're taken, and they're taken particularly to work in the king's court because of their lineage. Right, so a lot of people are taken in, into captivity, but they're particularly taken in and called Chaldeans because they're of of the king's lineage. Um, but a few things really quickly on just the the background of the Book of Daniel. You mentioned uh, it's about 604, 605 BC, but it wasn't written down. That's the interesting thing. Till about 164 or so BC. It's about another 450 years later. So a lot of these are legends and things that have been passed down orally, and then eventually written down. So it's probably one of the the latest books in the Old Testament as far as what was written. Yeah. There, I mean, in fact, there's a lot of controversy about uh, did Daniel the prophet write a lot of these things or were they things that other people wrote because he told them about it? Um, and we just don't, obviously, we don't know 100% for sure. Right. And that, part of that, so there's a couple things that's divided into thirds. Part of it's Hebrew, part of it's Aramaic, and then part of it in Hebrew again. Yeah, it was one of the, the only... Examples of Aramaic we find in the quote-unquote Hebrew scriptures, and right in the middle of it, either either this Hebrew section has been lost and replaced with what we had, you know, if I had only the Aramaic, I would put that in there. So that may have been what happened, or it may have been originally written in Aramaic. It may have been, and then it might have been just the way it was compiled, and it may have been also the type of the type of story narrative, and so then you switch back and forth. Yeah, and but so— for whatever reason, you got three different— sections there of yeah. different languages. And there's a little bit of foreshadowing. So when we study the New Testament, that is sort of the language that most people assume uh, that the Jews are speaking in Israel. And they got Aramaic from the Babylonians. The Jews brought this language back from their... They, they were speaking Hebrew when they were carried away captive. And when they came back, they were speaking Aramaic. So that you may have wondered where Aramaic even came from. It's because they were carried away captive into Babylon. And then there, it's divided into half in two different ways. One half is uh, uh, legends, which are written in third person, and the other half are prophecies written in first person, which is, I think is really interesting. So these narrative stories that we're discussing today, um, the young men refusing to eat the food of the king, the fiery furnace, and the, and the lion's den, 
These are the legends you're talking These about. These are the legends. Yeah. Yep. And then at the end, it's kind of more like apocryphal. Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic yeah. uh, uh, predictions. Yeah. Dan- Daniel has uh, some very specific and very interesting and very symbolic visions of the future. Right. And so those are all written in first person. Yeah. So that's why it's, it's it's kind of interesting, like the history. And so a lot of it, you know, I kind of take it a lot of as that as uh, kind of like Midrash, where we go, this gives me a big picture. But we're also not, I'm not going to like debate over little teeny words here and there because. Yeah. Who's the beast in chapter seven, verse 41? And, and how does he compare to the beast in verse 42? I mean, I'm, those, right. I'm pulling those verses out of my And the other head. thing is, those too, is uh, verses, but. all the chapters in Daniel aren't necessarily in chronicle order. And sometimes Nebuchadnezzar is just used as a general king, even though yeah. it might have been uh, a different king at different points. Yeah, um, and yeah, his his son. There is some evidence that they they confused Nebuchadnezzar with one of his sons at some at one point. Yep. So one last tidbit um, that I think is really interesting is that uh, Daniel's held in different regard in Jewish scripture compared to uh, Christian scripture and in tradition. So I find this interesting because a lot of my a lot of my sources and a lot of the things I like to study are all Jewish sources, either modern-day rabbis or, or the Tanakh here. And my, my particular copy has some really awesome footnotes. Tanakh is a Hebrew Bible. The, the Hebrew the Bible, yeah. yep. So usually I'll read, I like in, in church, I'll actually have it in English and Hebrew on my, on my iPad. Mm-hmm. But if I'm studying at home, I use this English printed version, and I like it because it's got a lot of great footnotes. And one of the What's things... What's the title of it? This is called... For those... The Jewish Study Bible. Oh, yeah. Okay. Tanakh translation. But so this particular one has a, it's a, a really pretty interesting footnote where it talks about how Daniel was originally considered a prophet at uh, Qumran and also in early Judaism, which you can also see like in... Uh, Qumran is where the Dead Sea Scrolls The Dead Sea Scrolls. Yep. So at that time, and like in, in uh, Josephus, right, also refers yeah. to Daniel as a prophet. But modern Jews... But then at some point, because there's all these uh, pre-configurations of Christ... Uh-huh. Then they're like, um, they kind of assigned him as the role of seer, not prophet. I see. And so then he gets kind they of relegated. Obviously, they haven't read the Book of Mormon where a seer is greater <laughs> than a prophet. Right. So that's exactly their phrase here is he's relegated down to seer, okay. not prophet. And so he's not then, he's put in the writings Yeah. in the Tanakh where in Christian Bibles, he's in, he's considered one of the major prophets. So he's in a different order. The books are in a different order. And that's one of the big books that's in a different order. Okay. So just a little bit of tidbit, I think, that I think is. Yeah. I I mean, historians put place Daniel, the the writing of the book of Daniel, so many years after all these events happened that they even say these prophecies of Daniel are actually somebody, somebody made them up after the fact to try to establish the idea that Daniel was a prophet by composing a prophecy as if of the past as if it were of the future, right? Which nothing is easier to do than to say, um, you know, write science fiction from the 1850s and say, oh, this guy came up with the light bulb. And isn't he smart, right? Because you're writing after the light bulb's already been invented. So that's kind of what they're doing with Daniel. Or that's the idea of a lot of scholars. And the the Latter-day Saint view is not necessarily to take a position on it either way, but... Yeah, but there are like lots of great quotes from Joseph Smith... That he that he believes Daniel's a prophet and yeah and, and his, off my head there's one where his visions that, are definitely yeah his visions, visions are of this world where John's visions yeah. are of the world to come you yeah know, so, so there's a lot of great quotes from prophets of latter day that give good credence to Daniel okay so let's let's talk about chapter one yeah uh, Daniel's friends yeah Mishael uh, and let me see if I can do it from memory uh, 
Hananiah and yep. Azariah. Good. So yep. Daniel and, and Daniel, those are their Hebrew names. When right. we talk about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you said or, it right. Yes. <laughs> as people as, say, Abednego, or as many or as many people call him, Abednego. I don't know they, where that started, but <laughs> maybe it's the the Somebody's, mythical beast of the Wendigo. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody started <laughs> saying it somewhere, right? And then everybody just yeah. says that now. So. Um, those are their Abednego. These guys, yeah, these guys took on uh, Babylonian names, and Daniel even has one, even though we call him by his Hebrew name. His, his name is Belteshazzar, and yep. they are given Hebrew names. They're given Hebrew jobs. They're given Hebrew dress, and so one of the first conflicts we're immediately exposed to is how do you assimilate, right? This and this is still a current concern because we hear a lot in the church: be of the, be in the world, but not of the world. And for Hebrews, that's, it's always been a concern because they're surrounded by Canaanites, but they're in the majority. And all of a sudden, here they are, just the four of them in Babylon, and people hate their principles. And so they, they immediately, ha- in the middle of this conflict of how do we keep our Jewish identity and how do we manifest our love of, of God? Yeah, so let's talk quickly. I think, I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head there with the whole assimilation part. That's why they're given new names is to try to strip them of their, their old heritage and their old allegiance and give them a new allegiance to a new God. Mm-hmm. And so quick Hebrew on their name. So uh, Daniel, right? Dan means judge. So it literally means uh, uh, my judge is God. And Hananiah, um, if you break it down, it would be uh, basically as gracious is the Lord. Okay. And Mishael is who is what God is. Because me is we is, is who. And then... Azariah is my helper is the Lord. So they're all names that reference deity. They're all right. names that, that, show that say Yahweh is. Yeah. And show reverence to God. Okay. And so then they get the new names. And depending on the source, I have basically there's not a lot of agreement because these are Babylonian names. Yeah. Um, but kind of the best that I've got here. Because uh, basically, even my Tanakh footnotes here said there's no total satisfactory okay. meaning, but but I really do think these are good ones. So Daniel is changed, as you said, to, to Belteshazzar. Bel meaning um, this Babylonian god. So basically meaning Bel protects the king. So his name is now changed uh, from my, my judge's god, meaning Elohim, El, to Bel protects the king. In other words... You know, this li- idolatrous this, Babylonian god. May, yeah. may the god protect the king. Protect, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar. Right? And then, so then Daniel takes the, the ta out and just calls himself Belshazzar, which basically says, Bel not to protect the king. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, Hebrew puns where people are, one of my favorites is uh, Lord of the Flies. Right? So they, they refer to Baal. So Baal just means Lord. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean the great evil Lord mm-hmm. uh, of Satan, but it just means Lord. Like you could say Lord of the manor. Right. It's the name for the, for the Philistine God of the weather that surrounds uh, a lot of the cities of Judah throughout the old Testament. Yeah. And so when they call him Bill Shabub and they call him ball for short, mm-hmm. um, it's a, it's a pun and it basically means Lord of the flies, meaning you worship a, a God of crap because it attracts flies when really they're trying to say, uh, Bel Shavuel, meaning the Lord of the Manor. Oh, I see. So there, so it's a little play on words. So it's the same thing here. So Daniel does the same thing. He takes the ta out. Oh, to be Bel, <laughs> you know, Bel not to protect the king. 
his his little playground way of making fun of that name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar. Exactly. And then that's a good way of saying it. And Hananiah <laughs> uh, becomes Shadrach or Shaduko, uh, basically uh, command of Aku, where Aku is the moon okay. god. Uh, Mishael uh, becomes uh, Meshach or Meshaku, again, reference to Aku. And then uh, Abednego, Azariah becomes Abednego. And that, so Abed in, in uh, it just means servant in, in Hebrew. And so it's uh, the servant of Nebo. Okay, so all these names now are given... The, New gods. Yeah, they're Bell, given reference Aku, to some Babylonian Nebo. deity. Right. right, trying to take away their allegiance and all their reverence to the real god, to this this all these new fake idols. Okay. And they didn't, it's what's interesting is they didn't object at that point. They didn't say, we're not going to go by your new names for us. They accept the names and they are, they're learning the language of Aramaic of, of Babylon. No problem. They're living in Babylon. They don't have a choice about that. But then when they say, okay, we're going to give you this rich food. We need you to be well fed so that you can be of service to the, to the king. Uh, that's too far for them. And we don't know exactly why, because um, meat, in the as used in the Old Testament, can be any kind of food, really. It just means what you're going to eat, what you're going to be using for sustenance. So we have to make assumptions. Uh, maybe you might have some more information on that, but we have to make assumptions. Yeah. Maybe, the, maybe the meat wasn't killed correctly, or maybe um, in some other way it wasn't kosher, but they didn't keep kosher then as... Uh, as they do as a, an Orthodox Jew would today. And there's no prescription on wine in the dietary laws of the Old Testament. So for whatever reason, they objected to the food, and it may have been because of the laws of Leviticus, or it may not have been. Yeah, so somewhat. So a lot of people read this, and they'll say, see, they abstain from meat, so we should also be vegans yeah, or vegetarians. Yeah. But really, in the end, it's it's more of the fact that eating the eating the meat means they're participating in idolatry. So um, there's about four reasons here I have. And one is that the food's most likely forbidden from consumption, like the way they were killed. Like uh, most of the Babylonians usually didn't drain the blood all the way correctly. Things like, you know, you'd read in Leviticus. Yeah. In fact, Jews were the earliest humane uh, slaughterers of, of animals. They would kill animals in a very humane way. And if it wasn't killed that way, they couldn't eat the meat, even if it was not a forbidden animal like a sheep. Right. So here, so... That was a big thing for them is they wouldn't properly drain the blood. The second thing is they uh, a lot of times would offer these meats up to their gods before they eat gods them. before they eat them. And yeah. so in that sense, by even eating them, then you're participating in that part of the worship ritual or worship. So they, you know, they, they and the lesson is is pretty easy to see. After a certain amount of time, the the these guys have to put their faith on the line and they kind of have to gamble and say we're 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 willing to take the risk that we're not going to be as well fed as everyone else but please feed us with healthy foods with grain with water and um you know kind of like a modern day uh paleo diet and they'll um that was kind of a joke but <laughs> anyway <laughs> i smiled i should have laughed out loud because <laughs> it's audio they uh and then after a certain amount of time, they show up more wise. The answers that they give are better than everyone else. And a lot of times this is interpreted as, you know, see, we should follow the word of wisdom, which is another of God's dietary laws. And uh, the truth is the, the food probably had less to do with it than the fact that they were obedient. And that's the same right. thing with the word of wisdom is 
it's not really terrible for you to, uh, in fact, doctors, scientists would find evidence on either side of almost all of the, all of the substances in the word of wisdom. A lot of people think green tea is great or red wine or whatever. The point is they, they might not have, uh, these animals might have been uh, forbidden. They might not have been, but because they were obedient at the end of the time and probably diligent at the end of the time that was set for their testing, the answers that they gave were found to be more wise than anyone else. These were the wisest people, all of the, all of the young advisors that have been brought forward. The, these guys were kind of head of their class. Yeah, so they're kind of commanded to learn and perform all these, well, it's called magic. But that, that, that's the term it's used. Basically, they're supposed to, and the other term is uh, Chaldeans, which usually just means um, people of Chaldee, but really in this particular They became context, the elites. The Chaldeans became the elites. That was where all the learning was, was concentrated. So yeah, it's so in this context, like, it means they're like the, the court magicians. Yeah. And... But yeah, they're always... Whatever passed for science in their day, yeah, really. Yeah, exactly. And so they're always 10 times better at, yeah. every, at every test. And they have like this, um, a servant that's always supposed to take care of them and check in on them and feed them. And they start asking like, hey, how come they're outperforming everybody else? Yeah, yeah. And okay, so let's skip to chapter three. So this, we can guess that this has given given rise to some jealousy, right? These, these guys are, number one, they have some sort of... Uh, the fact that they're abstaining from what the group is doing probably makes other people feel like they think they're better than them. And then all of a sudden, and then obviously they're they're high performers, and then all of a sudden they're refusing to bow down to um, the god of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Now we're skipping over chapter two, and it's so important and it fits right in with this, but there's a whole lesson about it, so we'll we'll do that next time. But the point of chapter two is that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Daniel interprets this dream, and he tells Nebuchadnezzar, "You're the. This dream is the image of, of, or at least part of this idol that you see in the dream is is you, Nebuchadnezzar, the king." Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, you can kind of guess or surmise that Daniel actually gives Nebuchadnezzar the idea, "Hey, I ought to construct a big idol of myself, right?" And so chapter three begins. He's done exactly that, and here's this here's this dream come to life. Except instead of just the head, the whole thing is represents Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, and I'm guessing is uh, I haven't looked at the actual lesson, but is that the whole dream? I guess is a whole nother lesson. Yes, Daniel chapter two is a is a separate lesson, so we won't go into that dream in detail. But right, but, but just to quickly make a note, I have a to me. So usually when I hear the word dream in the Old Testament, um, I think vision. Yeah. Because uh, usually when we say dream, then that makes us want to like try to interpret our dreams a lot, which which would be more of trying to understand how our own subconscious mm-hmm. is analyzing the things in our life. But I think in this case, it's like a vision, right? And, and that kind of brings up the big question of can non-members get visions? And so I have some, kind of some references here. And I think people can, particularly depending on their role. Mm-hmm. So here he's the king. And so because he's the king, the Lord's saying, look, here's, I'm going to give you a vision. And this is the kind of, you need to straighten up or this is, these, and this is going to happen. And Pharaoh is another example of somebody right. who received one of those and Joseph interpreted it. And uh, exactly because it was Pharaoh's dream, Joseph didn't have to come to him and say, here's what's going to happen. Pharaoh, it was a way of getting the truth to Pharaoh. And then uh, the interpretation came from a prophet. Yep. So, and then a couple latter day examples, I feel like, uh, when you read a lot about Lincoln, it's pretty obvious, I think, that he had some very significant visions 
on the world. And I think Ben Franklin did too, when you read about all the things he hmm. said or did, right? So I feel like visions are, are a particular thing, um, but a lot of times we read it as dream, mm-hmm. meaning like, hey, I woke up with the craziest dream and it must mean something. I think we need to make that distinction that it's it's more specifically vision. Okay, yes. So then we skip ahead, keep going. Um, so the the interesting part about this idol, and th- this is a theme that runs throughout Daniel, is that um, the the idea of an image, right? And that's why I wanted to answer this question as part of today's lesson, because the the word the 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 Hebrew word for image is tselem with a t s. Yep. And um, God's and and you can you hear that word image, and you think thou shalt not make any graven image and bow down and worship it, right? The, you think of the image from the Ten Commandments, but the first place we actually run across the word image is in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates man in his own likeness and his own image. And right, right in the next verse, he says, increase in number, go forth and rule over the earth. And so God has already has a plan for images. And th- in my opinion, this is why idolatry is wrong, is because God created images for a reason. He created man. He, we don't need more images of God because you are one. And God already knows what to do with images. They're supposed to rule. They're supposed to rule in the way that God said. And then from the story of the Bible, what happened? Well, man chose his own definition of right and wrong. And so instead of following God's plan, he followed his own plan. So this is this is rebellion against God. Anytime you create an image, it's right. a symbol of rebellion. You're saying, I'm going to usurp the ruling, the the rule of the universe from God and give it to myself or give it to man. Yep. Yeah. So, was, yeah, it's Salem, exactly. Uh, image, it can also mean shadow. So, like, we're a shadow of God. Like, we're not on the same level, but we're, we, we look like him. Mm-hmm. And there's, a, and, but there's a lot for us to do before we can be on the same level. And as uh, Talmud says, like, Upper levels have to lift from the bottom levels. You know, the le- bottom levels can't push their way up. Upper levels have to lift, come down oh, okay. and lift their way up. That's a whole other thing with, uh, talks about with plants pulling uh, elements up, you know, and then animals eat that and lift it up. And that's a whole So things are Christ. lifted. They don't push themselves up. They're yep. lifted from above. So lifted from above. And that's our whole job is to try to do what we can to go up. But then in the end, God has to lift us up. And by making our own selims, our own image. We're trying to push ourselves up. Yep. I like that. And we're building our, basically we're building a foundation on the air. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a really, that'd be a fun lesson to do just. Just on that. Just on air. <laughs> well, uh, so I wish we could do chapter seven. Um, let me refer to it briefly. This is, this is Daniel's vision of um, the, the, the beasts that represent the kingdom, kingdoms of this world. So we, without going into detail on what chapter seven is, um, or what chapter two is, because chapter two and seven are sort of parallel chapters. Um, the the statue in chapter two is made up of different materials that represent different kingdoms throughout history. And then Daniel has a vision in chapter seven of, of these four beasts that represent different kingdoms throughout history as well. And then he's given by an angel, he's given the interpretation of his own dream. But um, this idea that kingdoms are beasts is prevalent throughout Daniel. And I wanted to refer to it so that we could talk a little bit about... So this is what happens when um, a nation usurps the power. Like Babylon is used as an archetype for God placing himself throughout the Bible. Even as far back as Genesis, the Tower of Babel is 
short for Babylon. It's a name given later on to this, this early tower that was found probably in roughly geographically the same place. The Tower of Babel is, is, has the same root of Babylon. And the, it's, a, it's an archetype for man saying, I am in charge. And every time, um, every time a man or a king or a kingdom usurps God's rule over the universe, then beastliness ensues. That's kind of what D- Daniel's like visions that. are meant to teach, yeah. is that um, the beast is going to come out whenever you have taken God out of his rightful place and put yourself in charge. Then um, there's going to be a beast. And you you can see it in this chapter um, when... So these these three, these four... Uh, actually, Daniel's absent, interestingly, right, in from, from this chapter. We don't know where he went. Maybe he was uh, sent somewhere or... Yeah, it's an interesting uh, question, but when they so they they're they're ratted out. Probably some of these jealous uh, rivals they rat them out, and they won't worship the idol that Nebuchadnezzar creates of himself. And so Nebuchadnezzar, so the in, to me it was interesting. They're brought before him, and the decree was anybody doing it, you will instantly be killed. But then when they brought before Nebuchadnezzar, he says, um, "Hey, are you guys willing to change your minds?" And so the right because he likes them. Yeah, the decree wasn't actually you'll instantly be killed, or he didn't really mean it. He didn't really mean the decree. What he meant was not you, in their case. You have to eventually, when you're confronted with this, you're going to have to change your mind about actually where you put your first allegiance. It's going to have to be eventually to the state rather than to God. And if you don't think the Bible is relevant today, then all you have to do is hear that. Hear, hear this little story about three people who were ratted out by their friends and brought to court, basically, yeah. and sued because they were putting their God before the the customs, their state religion, whatever that was. Yeah, Rabbi Lapin of California writes a lot about this now. He calls it the big G, God, and the little G, government. And, and you know, they should be in that order. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some people, if they don't have a big G of God, then they... To them, government becomes their god, and they and they make it bigger and bigger. They make yep, and they want. And America isn't obviously isn't the worst example of this. There are terrible examples all over the world, but yeah, we, we, we have plenty of place. Yeah, but we have plenty of examples here of where right. we have elevated our state or our culture. It could be culture, it could be government, it could be uh, even your community, whatever your mores that surround you. If you've turned them into God and sacrifice uh, what God wants for you, then you're. You're you're adding to the beastliness of the world. So this this ends, and you can see the beastliness because um, Nebuchadnezzar. First thing that happens is as soon as their resistance is is uh, nonviolent, right? They just say, "Look, we don't, we we're not going to worship your God. You you can throw us in the fiery furnace. We won't even try to stop you. God, our God is capable of protecting us, but if He doesn't." We're, we're, we're still not going to worship your God. And I think that's a huge point of the whole lesson. Nevertheless, we're still going to do the right thing. Do what is right. Let consequence follow. Maybe we'll be protected. Maybe not. There's a great conference talk on this by Elder Simmons years ago. And I uh, I can't remember what year it was. But all you have to do is, is search for General Conference Simmons, but if not. Because that little phrase, you know, God is capable of saving us, but if not. I think that's the title. So look that oh, up yeah. if you want to know more about this. Because that's basically what they say. is that God will save us. Um, he can save us, but if he not. Can, yeah, right. He can save us, but if not, we're still going to keep his commandments. Yeah. Meaning, do what is right, let consequence follow. Every movie 
I think one of the biggest plot points of every single movie is always, how can we get these characters to do the wrong thing? Well, we'll make, you know, they have to do the wrong thing because of these consequences. And then they have to do another wrong thing because of these consequences. Yeah, we got to dig a hole for them to get out and of they just later. Continue, and they never do the right thing, right? But the opposite of that is, no, we should just do the right thing. <laughs> and then it's not as, it's it's not not so as dramatic, Yep, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, so an interesting thing for me is this uh, Nebuchadnezzar, when he hears they won't do it, his 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 attitude changes. It depends on the um, on the translation you read. One translation has his attitude changed towards them, but then his expression. Most translations say his facial expression changed. And in the King James version, the form I think it's the form of his visage, right? But the Hebrew word is tselem. Again, we have this image. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar, in whose image the God is that they won't worship, when they when they present their resistance to the beast. All of a sudden, he loses control of his own selim. Oh, nice. And this is, I, I, I think this was originally I considered. I haven't caught that. I think this was intended to be a joke, right? It was, it was uh, the, height oh, of, sure. the height of irony that yep. all of a sudden um, the, the image that they're supposed to worship is actually changing on them. And in any case, he, he orders them thrown into a fiery furnace, and the guards themselves who throw them in, so hot is the furnace, the guards that throw them in are consumed in the fire. And so Nebuchadnezzar is so beastly that human life is expendable to him. He will he will waste human life just to punish people who won't do it, won't follow some whim of his. This is this is what Absolutely. happens. This is the extreme of the beast. Yeah, and I want to come back to that as you're talking. I just kind of thought one more thought back on the last point of uh, do it is right, let consequence follow, because it just remind me of Job. Right where he has all these bad things keep happening to him, and it's like no matter what, I'm just going to keep doing the right thing. And I think that's like such a great example because we see so many times either with close friends or various people who is like, yeah, I did the right thing for a long time, life didn't work out, so I'm just going to do my own thing now. But yeah, but my loyalty to God depended on right the results that I would get. Yep, and so it's like either either we have two attitudes. One is religion is I I owe God. So I'm just mm-hmm. gonna, I just owe God. I'm always going to be in debt, so I owe God. Or God owes me. And if you have the, I, I, the idea that God owes me, I did the right things. God owes me. He didn't pay up. So yeah, I'm going this way. And, you know, it's interesting. There's a, there's a real, I would say, conundrum for a lot of people uh, because God has promised to bless us. Right, right. So we pray and we ask for God's blessings, and if they never came, we would we would have a tough time with that, and and I think rightfully so. And then at some point, God is gonna, He's gonna teach us that He He is there, and then at some point, He's also gonna teach us that life is a test, and there's a balance, and it's a difficult. We we can't know in advance where that balance is. Yeah, that. So I mean, that's just part of life is learning, and and so a non-believer in God would say. Well, basically what you're saying is when God's not there, it's because he's testing you. And when he is there, it's because <laughs> he's answering a question. It's a self, I mean, it's a, it's a tautology. Nobody can disprove it. So you, your belief in God is a, uh, it's a fantasy that you've cooked up and you're reinforcing your own bias. Yeah. As Hugh Nibley says, I can always flip heads because I just discount the tails. Yeah. If you're, if you're willing to never <laughs> write down when you get tails. So uh, the point is, it really is a choice. That's why it's a choice to believe in God. Yeah, and so we have that phrase, um, spiritual but not religious. Mm-hmm. And that's basically the same thing. It's basically, what are God's obligations to me? And where if you, religion is 
doing things. What are my obligations? Which is, what are my obligations to God? And we should care far more about our obligations to God. Yeah. And then just, and today's culture is, and this is kind of the idol that we worship. Right. This is our Nebuchadnezzar set up on a plane is, what are my rights? Yep. What What do I have coming to me? Yeah, when we were young, just in terms of uh, of politics, right? There's that um, JFK, he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. But in the news all the time, you just see people, what What does the country owe me? What does the country owe me? Mm-hmm. What does life owe me? Well, one more, uh, I th- before we go into chapter six, Daniel and the yeah. lion's den, uh, one more interesting insight I had about this chapter is, um, they said God is capable of delivering me from the fiery furnace. And then we all skip to the end where they are not consumed in the fiery furnace. Right. And we think God delivered them from the fiery furnace. But the truth is, did God deliver them from being thrown in the fiery furnace? Right? Right. God that, did not. that moment, they still go, wait, 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 wait. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll, they, I'll give in. But even at that moment, they were thrown in the fiery furnace. Right. They And so uh, as the story goes, then the 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 king is looking and we see this from the king's eyes a lot of people um christians especially uh they read this ver- the next verse and it says uh they saw one who had the image of the son or Neb- nebuchadnezzar says i see one in there who looks like the son of god and we think oh he sees jesus christ in the fiery furnace with them yes and in Aramaic, in Hebrew, and in especially in ancient Near Eastern cultures, the sons of God, you might remember the phrase, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or you might remember in Job, um, Satan and God talking about Job, and they're surrounded by the sons of God. So this was the idea that God is surrounded by angels, and they're his sons. So what it means is Nebuchadnezzar is looking in there, and he sees a divine being. He sees somebody that looks like a glory, has some sort of glory surrounded Yeah, there's by. a painting that actually shows that it's Christ. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, which I is taken from the idea that it says the Son of God. Because, yeah, but, but what I he meant was this is Nebuchadnezzar's to... words, not our modern. It's not a modern person saying, "I see the Son of God there." Yeah, because there's a privilege of seeing God, and not just anybody can see God. And so Nebuchadnezzar would not be one of those people who gets the privilege of seeing God. But if we're going to read it right, it'd be more um, a sent one, a messenger, or yes. an angel. Yes. So there's a, there's, for whatever reason, or I should say, whoever it is in there with them, um, they're protected from the fire. Now, um, so the interesting thing, the insight that I had was God didn't deliver them from the fiery furnace. They come out, not even their clothes are damaged. They're, there's not even the smell of fire on them. It's as if they were never thrown into the fiery furnace. But God did not deliver them from getting thrown into the fiery furnace. Instead, what God did was, Go into the furnace with them. Right. Which is so, it's such a great symbol. Say more about that. Um, so we talk, We started this podcast off, right, with the, the question of um, serpents and mm-hmm. how things can mean different things depending on the context. And so a lot of times we think fire and we think hell, right? But a lot of times too, I mean, God uses fire. Uh, Melchizedek is called the purifier, the, the, the one who purifies metal, mm-hmm. the metallurgist, where... Like Cain and Tubal Cain are also metallurgists, but they're the counterfeit. Okay. And so they're, so this is a big furnace for metallurgy. And they get it seven times hotter. It's not just hot, they get it seven times hotter. Which in Hebrew is the, the, means complete or perfect or just the highest. Can't get any hotter. Yep. (laughs) It's, it's hot. And it actually kills people that trying to throw them in. Uh The people trying to throw them in get killed from the heat just to show that it's hot. But evil can't purify good. 
right? And that's the whole point is an evil king is trying to purify good men. And if something's purified, um, it's pure. And it, is, it, does, it does nothing to them. And not only a physical sense, but a spiritual sense. Oh, uh, interesting. So in, I think we mentioned uh, when we talked about the creation, uh, talks about in Midrash, the, 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 the firmament being laid out, uh, being thrown out almost like a, like a, like a curtain, being okay. with different people on each corner pulling it tight. And Melchizedek is on one of those corners, and he's called the purifier of worlds, where the purifier of matter, where he basically kind of his job is to take dead matter from space and, in effect, purify it and get ready for the creation of the world. And so I really like that analogy. And we even talked about the brother of Jared purifying stone with heat, right, and getting it to the point where it would be clear enough to glow if the Lord touched it. And so we have these symbols of purification continually with heat, and here, Nebuchadnezzar, an evil king. The th- and, and it's the son of God in the fire with them, purifying them. Yeah, trying to throw in these good men. And, it, and that, you know, the, symbolically, that's why it does nothing, because evil can't purify good. Oh, okay. I like that. For me, it summoned up um, kind of a theme I've been hitting on the last few episodes is, um, because it's been coming up in my own personal study, is the idea of the condescension of God. So for me, uh, it's really significant that when Nephi... At, he goes to God to ask clarification and revelation about what does my father's vision mean? Yeah. And the first thing, he wants to know the meaning of the fruit, and so he asks about it, and the angel says, okay, do you want to know the meaning of this fruit, which we all know is the love of God? The angel doesn't say that at first. He says, do you know the condescension of God? And then, he, and then we see the vision of Jesus Christ coming to the earth, um, and the condescension of God means that Jesus was willing, he doesn't, he doesn't lift us out of our troubles necessarily. What he was right. willing to do was experience them with us. Yeah, it's the and, same thing in Noah, right? The, the flood doesn't go away. Yeah. They, they survive the flood by being in a floating temple. By being with God, they survive the flood. Yeah. And so Jesus, by, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't reach down and pull us out of all our troubles. He's willing to be born into this world and experience the troubles and then in the culmination of his life, actually take on every trouble. And this is, a, this is an Old Testament version of the same story. God doesn't, God doesn't intervene and say, you know, the earth is going to shake. You're, you're pulled out of the fiery furnace. Instead, he goes into the furnace with them and experiences it with them. And at the end of it, they discover they're capable of withstanding what before they would have thought would definitely kill them or end them. Yeah, and I think... Um, we have this new term, ministering. Mm-hmm. I, I, I st- <laughs> I'll sometimes just say, I'm, I'm your ministering teacher, because I don't quite know how to say I'm your minister. <laughs> but this whole idea is, you know, we're supposed to be in the place of God. We're supposed to do what God would do if he were here on the earth. Uh-huh. And one of those things, one of the things we can do for ministering, helping people in need, as people go through all sorts of fiery furnaces in their own life, everybody's fire is a different one, all sorts of trials and tribulations and problems, and is to not be like Job's friends We'll say, where we go in and say, you, you must have brought this upon yourself. You, yep. You did this to yourself. And if you just repented and instead, like you said, what we need to do is do what God would do is walk through their furnace, walk with through them. their furnace with them and help them in, in the whatever way they need. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that, Bri. Okay. So uh, to me, that's the powerful lesson in chapter three and ch- chapter six is very similar. Uh, and this time it's just Daniel and it's, in, uh, I think it's worth noting. So 
historians would probably put King Darius this by this time the the Babylonians have been conquered by the Persians and so it's King Darius uh, who's the king now and Babylonians would probably put King Darius around 521 BC and in case you're paying attention Daniel was already a youth when he was brought in 605 BC so he was probably in his 90s if not his late 90s we often think right. Daniel's a young man when he's thrown into the lion's den. No, he's a very, very old man by this time. Um, so same deal, though. The, the, there's jealous people. They, they know that Daniel's a faithful person, so they create, they, they scheme to bring him down, and they create a law where he has to worship the state religion once again. He, they, he has to put the beast before God. He has to usurp the place of God and cast God down from heaven and put man in his place. And because he won't do it, they know he won't, and he won't do it. He won't pray. When the, when the time comes, he won't pray to, to Darius. He'll only pray to God, and they catch him at it. And then the, the prescribed penalty is getting thrown in the lion's den. So one of my favorite subjects is always uh, Midrash Rabbah. Mm-hmm. And there's a, Daniel's not mentioned all that much in Midrash, but there's one where he's repeated, the same, the same thing is repeated over and over and over. And it's always like a proof text that the Lord can and will intervene, but it doesn't change natural law. It's part of it's part of his whole plan from the beginning. Okay. And every time I hear the, the story of Daniel in the lion's den, this is what I immediately think of. So let me just read you a couple quick passages here from the Midrash here where it says, The Holy One, blessed be he, made a stipulation with the sea that it should divide before Israel and not, not not only with the sea alone, but uh, he made a stipulation with everything, which uh, was created on the six days of creation. And the whole idea is, um, why does God intervene and does that change nature, right? And what they're basically saying in in these you know these early rabbis from early few hundred years after Christ is they're basically saying that the Lord kind of put in almost like iron. He didn't a, change nature. He made force. nature. He made nature such that this is how it reacts to yep, the situation. Him. Which is still going, yeah. So it's like if I drop um, a chunk of iron, it'll just hit the floor. But if I have a magnet above it, it'll you know float and not fall to the floor. But is that a change of nature? No, it's just an it's a quality we don't know about. Okay. And so it uses all of these man, and so it goes through like eight proof texts. And you know he says you know I commanded the sea to divide before Israel. Um, I commanded you know um, the sun to stand still for Joshua. Uh, I commanded the ravens to feed Elijah. And then here's where it gets to these guys. It says, I commanded the fire to do no harm to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And I commanded the lions not to harm Daniel. And I commanded the heavens to open up before Ezekiel. Okay. So the reason why I like this uh, Midrash particularly is because the whole key is that righteousness. Righteousness is the key that unlocks the 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 aspect of that, uh, the, the miracle, right? The whole point in the Midrash is that natural law is suspended by God. It has eight examples, all these various things where, where, law, where God intervenes. And the question is why? And the answer is righteousness. Oh, okay. I like that. And I think that's a really great lesson for all of us, right? If we want miracles in our life, you know, we, righteousness is the key. Um, in the Tefret Zion, it's a it's a commentary on the Midrash is written in the late 1800s, 1890s. And it says on this particular Midrash, nature also does not triumph over those righteous men who are able to discipline their passions. Since basically they are disciplining their passions in order to serve their father in heaven. Nature has no power over them. 
and the proof is brought from the stories of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who were delivered from the fiery furnace, and Daniel from the lion's den. So to me, it was interesting that when Daniel, so we, we know the story, Daniel's cast into the lion's den. The king can't go back on his word because he loves Daniel, but he does love Daniel. And uh, in the morning, he's so happy to find out that Daniel is alive that he throws the the people who had to to who tried to get Daniel thrown in there, he throws them in there and they're ripped to shreds. These are hungry lions, right? We, right. And that's, so it's, yeah, kind of to prove that the, it wasn't just a happenstance, right? That the lions just that day weren't hungry. Yeah. It's like, no, they were actually really hungry. They were just um, held back. But again, Daniel wasn't saved from going into the lion's den. Exactly. And so we think, oh, you know, God will save me. And Daniel was saved from the lion's den. He was actually in the lion's den. And, uh, you know, sometimes as, uh, and you'll, if you, I, I recommend everyone read this talk by Elder Simmons, but sometimes the lions eat you, right? I mean, sometimes life doesn't turn out the way you think and you think, oh, if God will only bless me. And the example he gave was he's a kid and he goes to this basketball tournament. And when he's coming home, he says, mom, why didn't we win? I had so much faith that God would bless me that we would win, you know? And then he, and then he says, I, I later learned that that wasn't the way faith, exactly the way faith works. Right? right, he probably had faith that God would bless him, and he thought, "Oh, we're if we don't win, that means God isn't looking out for me." So, you know, and there are plenty of examples throughout history of martyrs who prayed up until the end that God would save them, and then it, it suited the purposes of God that the in this particular case the the lions weren't their mouths weren't stopped up, and they yeah. they actually died. Right, that the worst can happen to people who believe in God. Yeah, like uh, that's um, not the proof of whether Abinadi God's on your side. Like Abinadi is a good example, right? So he's protected up until his mission is finished. Yeah, and then you think, well, how come he's not protected from the fires? Like, well, that's his mission's finished. I, I guess my yeah, I guess my point is, uh, if you ever you could find yourself on both both sides of this question throughout your life, if you ever find yourself on the side of Abinadi getting burned in the fire, uh, just remember you're in really good company. You know, Abinadi, his face shone when he was prophesying. And he, uh, I, I don't think anyone would doubt, anyone who believes in the Book of Mormon would doubt he was immediately received into God's presence. And and as soon as his suffering was over, then his joy was immeasurable. So we have to remember that this life is a test. And it, a test doesn't do any good if it's too easy. A test doesn't help at all. Absolutely. If you don't have to study for it, then you didn't, you might as well not have had that test. Uh so that's that's the book of Daniel that we had today. Let's talk briefly about Esther. To me... Oh, yeah, before you jump to that, okay. one quick thought. One, la- I think the big point that uh, the Midrash is making on Daniel is that we all need intervention. And maybe a better way to say it is uh, revelation. And probably one of the best books it was written by a rabbi in the late 1800s AD. And his name is Rabbi Yandel. And it took him 14 years to write... Uh, five volumes mm-hmm. as commentary. And there's some of the best stuff. But some of the commentators talking about that whole section basically talk about how this rabbi would spend sometimes 14 years trying to understand one little verse, just reading and reading and reading and reading, just trying to understand it. And it wasn't until almost what he would call re- revelation would come to him and then he would get the answer and write it down. And the whole point is that we can do so much on our own, but we can only do so much. But we have to put our own work in Mm-hmm. And and that's what almost all the commentators are saying in this when they use that these various proof texts of God intervened here and God intervened there, is that we can only do so much, and then at some point we need God to help. 
but we also have to do our we have to do our part. If we don't do so much, then God won't help. Right. <laughs> Even though we can only do so much. Right. So the way I look at it is sometimes people will say, "Well, don't you feel bad you didn't get this gig of some kind?" You know, maybe it's like some big national gig or something. And all, all I can do is like, "Well, no, all I can do is my part." And as long as I'm You're talking about being booked photography. Right. Photography wise, like just all I can do is everything I can do. And if it works out, then it works out. But if it doesn't, it doesn't. But I feel like there's two halves. There's what I can do and what God can do. And God's not going to do his part unless I'm doing all of my part. And I think revelation is the biggest thing. One of the big examples, uh, Hugh Nibley has a whole bunch of talks about early Christianity and all these early Christian apologists, some who would spend their whole lives trying to figure out the nature of God. Did God actually have a body? Was there one or three? And, mm-hmm. and they spent their entire lives trying to figure out just that one thing. And same with Joseph Smith, you know, but he got a vision and then the answer came, but it came from doing all you can do first. But at some point we we can't figure everything out on our own. We can't learn it all on our own and we can't do it all on our own. We always need that extra little help. And in this case, it's shown as God saving Daniel or the three men from the fiery furnace. But we can think of it in ourselves as um, revelation or, or inspiration, I actually think that's the perfect sum up of Esther as well, because I'm sure you're aware that Esther is the one book in the in the Hebrew scriptures that doesn't mention the name of God a single time. And so the story of Esther is that she's, uh, this is even later than Daniel, right? The, the Babylonian captivity has been going on for a hundred years. And uh, by this time, they're in the, they're in the capital city of Persia. And Esther yeah, the the king is frustrated with his wife, so he puts her away and has a beauty contest, basically. And, and Esther wins the beauty contest, becomes the wife of the king. But he doesn't know she's Jewish. She's hiding her identity. And anyway, that there's actually quite a quite a bit we could say about Esther. It, the whole book, the, the narrative structure is actually chiasmic, as I discovered this week. Oh, nice. But, uh, and I, and I, if you're interested in that topic, then you should uh, look up Bible, just go to YouTube and search for Bible Project Esther, and you'll see what I'm talking about. But uh, the point for me was that, like you were just saying, um, the the message of the book of Esther is that God is sometimes hidden from us. We have to do all we can do. And I think that it was very deliberate on the part of the author of the book of Esther. We have to We have to search for God. So the name of God is not in this story, and you have to try to find God. Where did God intervene exactly? Because uh, it was all earthly. Um, there were some coincidences that occurred in the book of Esther, like uh, Mordecai happened to overhear a plot against the king, and that's how he gained the king's favor. But then there was an evil plot against the Jews, and Esther was willing to risk everything and reveal that she was a Jew so that the king would would help, right? But the point of the whole book is, for me, that sometimes God will use means that you don't foresee. For example, um, Esther and Mordecai are two people that are totally integrated. They're assimilated, unlike Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Abednego, that are uh, <laughs> right. That are unwilling to totally assimilate. Their their Jewishness is like central to their identity. Esther and Mordecai are the opposite. They're willing to hide their their religious identity. And the point of the book is. God can still work through people like that. God can be hidden in all kinds of places. And God, you might not even know that he's around because his name isn't mentioned at all. And yet, God will look after his people. And it, it's a it's a very hopeful message in people through their long exile, through the long centuries of exile that, that Israel is about to endure. 
that God is still there, even though you don't see him, even though the, his name isn't mentioned, for example. And so when we, when we read about Israel's exile, what we think is the time in our lives where we're suffering and we feel like God is far away. So Esther is a wonderful message for that. God is far away from me right now. I can't see him. I don't, I don't know I don't, how he's going to intervene. And what you just said was, I think, really profound for that is they did their part. They, they performed the work that they could to basically summon whatever miracle God has. And the miracle, when it, when it took shape, it, was fall, it just followed a natural progression. Maybe you would have to exercise faith to see it as a miracle. And nevertheless, it came and Esther proved to be the means of saving the entire Jewish people. Yeah, I think your uh, points are right on the money. I agree with all of that. Yeah. <laughs> Good, Brian. You're, you're my favorite kind of guest. <laughs> I concur. <laughs> well, the, this was wonderful. This was a perfect lesson to have you on. And uh, anyway, this this might be the last time we see you this year, but we'll, uh, we'll for sure have you uh, join us for some of our New Testament lessons. And oh, I'd love it. And it's always fun to be on your podcast. Yeah. I enjoy listening to it. So I appreciate you doing it. Wait, you're a fan? <laughs> I'm one of your biggest fans. Right, you've been a lot of help. Um, so anyway, I, I'm so grateful for the lessons that I've learned from the, from the Old Testament. The book of Daniel is one of the, the most powerful lessons. And for me, the most powerful lesson this week was God walks through our fiery furnaces with us. He doesn't, he may not deliver us from the fiery furnace. I like that theme. But he walks through it with us. That's, if you're wondering how you're going to get through it, it's because God is with us, as Emmanuel named him, Emmanuel, or as uh, Isaiah named God, Emmanuel, God with us. And that was the lesson of the Old Testament as well as the New. So that's what we leave with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.